Hello and welcome to With Open Mouths, the podcast. I'm your host, Kanita Lilla. This podcast runs alongside Agnes's exhibition of the same name. The show With Open Mouths interrogates conventional museum practices. It asks if objects that originate outside Western knowledge-making systems can find their voices in new ways. In this podcast, I sit down with artists, musicians, curators, and spoken word poets to discuss the expression of their practice and to find out what inspired them to open their mouths and to be heard. We were shining, they wanted us in shade. They thought we would stay slaves. Today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by my colleague, Sebastian Deline. Sebastian is an artist and an associate curator at Agnes Etherington Art Center. He, they, also works as a teaching fellow for the Department of Languages, Literatures and Cultures at Queen's University. His, they, doctoral research focuses on the manufacturing of capitalist values and economies that transform agential, indigenous, and racialized ancestors into laboring objects of extraction, accumulation, and consumption, determined by the acquisition criteria within museum collections. Is their publications include the Journal of Visual Cultures and Junctures? Hi, Sebastian. How Hi, are you Kenita. doing today? Hey. <laughs> there you are. Hey, there I am. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> That's a pleasure. Um, I would love you to introduce yourself um, since I introduced you. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Sebastian DeLine. Um, as Kenita had um, shared earlier, I am a, a newly appointed associate curator at the Agnes Etherington uh, previously, I was a research associate, uh, and I primarily work with the Indigenous collections and in building relationships with community uh, in terms of care uh, for the ancestors in the collection and in their return and in the ways in which community, um, taking community-centered, community-led approach to um, the care of their ancestors that are currently housed at the Agnes Atherington. So that's um, kind of the bulk of what uh, what I'm working on here at the Agnes, uh, as well as um, in the future, working on some curatorial projects. So thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. Thanks, Sebastian. Um, I always I like to start with um, you know going back into people's life to see how how it is that they came to be the people they are and the creators they are. Um, could you tell me a bit about growing up? Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, where where does one start? I don't know about you, but um, if anyone asked me when I was younger if I, uh, you know, what what my life plan was, I don't think at that point I would have told you that I was going to be a curator or uh, even an artist. Actually, probably at that point. Um, so my my life, like some people have, has taken a bit of a windy trajectory um, to where it has become, you know, where I am at this point today. Um, but I started out uh, early on uh, in my 20s, actually, uh, as a craftsperson. I was making shoes, and uh, I did that for nearly 20 years. Uh, and then that evolved into design, which evolved then into 
going to art school uh, and moving more into other installation, sculpture, um, and visual art. And now a little bit more actually performance is uh, kind of the direction it's going at this point. So mm-hmm. multimedia. Um, and from there, uh, the trajectory has shifted uh, also to include um, interest in academia and theory um, and curation. So um, I don't know about you, Kanita, how your direction was uh, into your doctorate, but <laughs> I'd love to hear about that too, if you um, like. Yeah, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the shoes, Sebastian. <laughs> I always, you know, I think that, um, yeah, it's, they're part of our stories that we kind of, um, you know, don't think are as important, you know, especially when you are in academia, you kind of focus on things that make sense um, at a particular time. But that, but the shoe story, you've got to tell me how you ended up making shoes. It's a very unusual craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Everybody always wants to know about the shoes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we all have them. We all, most of us need them. So, you know, that was a big part of it too, right? It was um, when I was finishing high school, you know, uh, like some people, I really didn't know what I wanted to study in university. And, you know, the thought of going to university at that point at a young age and not knowing what uh, I would focus on and um, seeing people that I knew end up with very large uh, student loans Mm -hmm. afterward in which, you know, they're paying for, you know, a decade of their student loans and still winding up with a degree that they were not necessarily happy with or didn't end up leading them to a career in which, you know, was meaningful, um, didn't didn't sound for me at the time like a good decision. Um, And what I knew then was that what I was seeking was competency and, so that, that's how I actually started getting into shoes is I first went to trade school and I studied sheet metal. <clears throat> um, and I found that um, it was easy to pick it up, but uh, it, it missed like that creative aspect of it. Um, and I actually became bored quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a friend of mine that suggested, you know, we were talking about different um, professions and different trades that said, well, you know, we we're kind of tossing different ideas around. And she said, well, what about shoemaking? And I thought, wow, that sounds very um, kind of a dying art, you know, in mm. Canada, <laughs> as not many people um, pursue that, you know. And so I didn't actually know how I go about it. But I, you know, I remember saying to her that um, I'll give anything a shot at this point, um, you know, for six months and to determine whether or not it's a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. And the rest was history. You know, it took a while to uh, get a job in that field. I started out repairing shoes um, and I worked for a Dutch Canadian um, employer um, who came from a long line of shoemakers and had moved to Canada um, when he was young with his wife and took over a business for a man that was retiring in Vancouver. And then um, so he ran that shop and he had, they ended up staying and raising their children there. And um so from that, I ended up later on moving to Europe and working for his family, who are all all shoemakers on both their sides. So I worked for his sister and brother-in-law, um, who were sixth-generation shoemakers. So that was the what they had said was that's the best place to go to learn if I really wanted to learn the actual craft from start to finish, because you know we don't have a shoemaking school in Canada. So um, and 
shoe design is kind of its own other trajectory. It wasn't centered necessarily on the craft. Um, and I, at that point, I really, I enjoyed, what I enjoyed about shoemaking was that there's so many different aspects to the craft. I'd never got bored, you know, so there's pattern making and then there's also this sewing of the uppers and the finishing of it. And then there's the soling. And eventually I got into the last making, which is what I ended up specializing in um, later in my career. I worked in orthopedics a lot. Um, and so. Sebastian, who wears handmade shoes? <laughs> what, who? I mean, it's it's an amazing idea. It's lovely that you can, you know, go to somebody and have your foot fitted for your own particular pair of shoes. But who, like in reality, besides people who have like medical conditions and stuff, who are these people? Yeah, in reality nowadays, who makes handmade? Well, it's a, okay. If I, the theorist in me has other answers, <laughs> right? We can get into the whole complicatedness of <laughs> actually the handmadeness of mm. you know, um, factory manufactured shoes. But um, I think where, where you're going with it, um, yeah, primarily the people that can afford shoes that are handmade, like the spoke shoemaking, um, are generally people that have more. Um, of a higher income that they can uh, afford to buy those kind of shoes. But yeah, primarily nowadays, um, the bulk of um, who buys bespoke shoes are actually um, orthopedic clients, you know, and that, that was the field that I worked in. And, um, and even that shift uh, in Europe, I had heard a lot from other colleagues in the industry that there was a big transformation that actually happened um, in the 20th century that moved from bespoke to orthopedics because of um, insurance. Mm. And so large countries like Germany and the Netherlands um, who have um, orthopedic shoemaking, you know, um, um, covered by insurance, um, that, that was, that was a, there was a big move in, in the industry towards that direction. So that is primarily who buys handmade shoes nowadays. Yeah. Or like clients with diabetes and, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and leg shortages and other um, other needs, you know, that require that that go beyond the, the capacity of a conventional shoemaking. Um, how did you make the transition from shoemaking into conceptual art? Mm, that well, that was art school. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. I I went to art school um, in the evenings. Um, when I was working as a shoemaker. So I used to work in a factory in the mornings and then I would go to school at night. There was an adult, uh, you know, mature student program. I, I did a BFA and for five years. And a lot of the artists um, that taught the, the course were also interested in conceptual art. Um, and the, the school I went to um, in Amsterdam was called the Gerard Riedfeld Academy. Mm-hmm. But it was had a lot of conceptual artists um, there and and their interests so they never taught craft in that way they always said you've got to go out and learn that uh yourself uh they just expected you to um be more autonomous in that way but in in the school itself they didn't focus on that they focused on teaching what art is uh and all the the kind of more um theoretical questions around art Mm -hmm. um in order to contextualize what we were doing and then so that's that's uh how i ended up taking that trajectory. But um, did you somehow, were you able to transfer um, your kind of craft-like skills? I mean, you have, I mean, you've, I'm sure you did. 
you were in the field for 20 years, you know, and, and uh, you know, like how did you translate that from, from doing something that was so particular, um, you know, handmade, like it had to just be perfect? Um, how did you translate that? How did that um, kind of fit together, you know, like the, the physicality that you were used to, you know, working with and kind of translating those kind of things into ideas? Perhaps you can kind of talk um, around like a show that you did or some particular like works or pieces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, maybe in a way I felt like I kind of took a um, different trajectory in the sense that, I saw art school as a place that I could try other things. You know, I, I saw it as a way that it could open up my practice um, that I wouldn't, uh, that I had become at that point. So um, kind of fixed in a certain process of making mm. shoes that then it was actually very hard when I started art school to open up my mind a lot more and, and, uh, and um, expand my practice to something that, yeah, was very, you know, with making shoes, uh, it is so tied to the function that, mm. all, you know, um, you know, mind you, there are um, other, you know, shoe designers that design first from a conceptual basis and then try to manifest it, let's say, materially. Um, but because my practice first was grounded in the craft, I could never free myself entirely from it. I always you know, uh, whenever conceptualizing something, I tried to imagine how it would be made, what it would be made with. And, you know, that I, I had been keeping the engineering of it in mind all the mm-hmm. time and the, and the ergonomics of it. And, and, you know, biomechanics was always my background as an orthopedic shoemaker. So um, in that sense, uh, it was actually challenging when I went to art school to um, even when I remember many moments I've had in my life where I, I thought that I would was somewhat free from it uh, in my practice. There are always people that still remind me that there's an aspect of a shoe still in a lot of the, <laughs> you know, sculptures I make and stuff like that. And even if I don't see it myself. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, sometimes I, I actually feel a little bit um, kind of kicking myself. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, but I'm, I'm sure that it's just, it's so deeply buried. It's subliminal. It must be. You know, it's kind of like if you, um, like, for example, I was taught very early, like, how to cook, like, at 10 years old, um, because I had to kind of help everybody out, and we had a big family and so forth. Um, And then later, like, you know, in my 20s, I was like, no, you know, this is not a woman's role. Um, This has, like, been stifling me, like, completely. Um, But, you know, in my heart of hearts, it's something that I really love and enjoy, you know. So it's kind of like trying to find a balance between the things that, you know, you choose and the things that are, like, inherently there. They're just, like, part of, like, it's and and it's it's beyond us. It's kind of, like, ancestral even, you know, Um, like the kind of things that we were taught or that we just genetically programmed into doing or something, you know, um, I, I really get that sense. And, you know, the things that we kind of have to also just like make peace with, you know, and kind of move beyond those things. Um, so I can I can definitely understand why they just said that it comes back. I mean, the shoe is just it's 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 just such an incredible kind of metaphor for, you know, life's journeys and things. Um, and 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 it was an amazing place for you to start, you know. Um, yeah, 
And I also, I, I don't believe it's, you know, um, these things kind of fall from nowhere. You know, they, they just must have been something that that made you like so attuned, um, you know, to that. So like what, um, what do you think, like what was a particular project at that time that you felt proud of? Mm. I, you know, I, have, I tend to try to tie things together. So my, my mind is uh, trying to tie everything together a little bit, <laughs> um, which is why I just um, taking a moment to, to pause yeah. and think oh, about fine. it. But because I'm thinking about what you're saying, you know, about how maybe sometimes when we come into learning something that is um, a labor, you know, and we might not, um, there's kind of that tension of appreciating the joy of it or the the artistic Part of like let's say with cooking you know but it's never uh you know inseparable from the the consciousness of being a woman and laboring in that kind of form of domestic labor you know but there might be moments of like i can imagine i love cooking too like when you're you know it's highly creative you know mm-hmm. to be able to but then you know when you're cooking uh for your family there are just days where you're really tired and yeah. you know you might not have the creative capacity oh, yeah yeah <laughs> And it's going to be kind of fish burgers in the microwave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's kind of been going like that. <laughs> I feel like the shoemaking journey was a bit like that in, in a different sense that, you know, like getting back to like maybe, you know, being young and, and not growing up with a kind of competency. Um, and then um, I lost my father when I was very young. And um so growing up and not having someone around to kind of teach me that sort of tradition of of a craft or what, you know, what your parents would pass down to you. I'll get to that part of the story later because actually my mother's an artist. So I ended up inheriting in a way her mm, tradition yeah. you know, uh, as an artist. But but I didn't start out in that direction. You know, I I think I, I leaned towards wanting to learn um, what I was missing. Right. And so and part of that was, I think, part of my healing journey in mourning, you know, was to carry on as a young adult and find a way to um, take care of myself that I could live and work anywhere, because anywhere everyone needs shoes. Right. And that was part of, I think, the, you know, the psychological, at least impetus behind picking a craft like that, um, that, that uh, I could carry that competency wherever I went and take care of myself. Um, and finding joy in it, you know, were those moments where finding the joy in the creative aspect of it, um, that allowed it to become much more, you know, and there was that kind of, I definitely went through a period in the years I, I, I studied and made shoes to, I think I was interested in, um, a kind of self-mastery, you know, and I liked that this craft, it, everyone that I know who makes shoes it's a lifelong journey. Uh, no one ever becomes a master. <laughs> I, I, I would argue to say that most people are never fully a master at making shoes because there's so many different aspects to learn about it. Um, you can constantly improve, you know? And so we're when you meet other shoemakers, you're sharing tips and tricks and, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly uh, um, learning better ways to make things and more refined and et cetera, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, it's a, it's a long learning curve. You know, um, yeah, That's I, I, I missed, uh, sorry, the second part of the question. <laughs> I, I, can't remember, I can't remember. I was just thinking how, um, you know, like for myself, um, I went to art school um, 
almost on the opposite kind, with the opposite kind of impulse, um, not to do something practical, like not because I felt um, that, you, you know, like when I was at school, I, I got introduced to art and I thought and to museums and I thought this is like a completely new world that I just never understood existed or you know at all um and was very foreign like my family's very traditional um but luckily they let me kind of do this somehow because my dad felt you know he kind of had the sense that girls needed to be educated which was which was which was incredible you know coming from a really kind of uh traditional person um and so when I went into art school it, it it was it was so peculiar because it was a very a highly traditional classical art school mm-hmm. and I was I also came into it like from I just had no experience like drawing plaster casts you know like David and you know all these you know the uh, dying slave and all these crazy things that you know were kind of transposed into Africa um, and then also life drawing, um, you know, naked domestic workers. It was just all this kind of, and it was so alien and alienating um, that I found solace in theory because I felt I was kind of hidden there, you know, like my, and and I was safe. It was kind of like a safe space um, to practice and kind of develop my ideas. And, you know, the, our um, art classes, art history classes were so enormous. It was almost like a thousand students. And like you never wrote your name on a, a script. So nobody knew who you were, which was fantastic for me, you know, because I would always stand out when I was in that lecture hall, <laughs> you know, it was like 99.9% white. So people could always see me. But when I wrote, nobody knew who I was. So it was, you know, this kind of like freedom in, um, you know, being anonymous. Um, but then, yeah, it, it is, it's really, it's really, really interesting. Like, um, you know, this fact that you felt that you needed to um, do something that people needed, you know, um, which is so important. I, I felt that people needed to, like, I needed to be in a space where people could just, like, hear my voice, even if they, you know, were just reading what I had to say, just because of the kind of traditional constraints like on me and, you know, the racial constraints and all of those kind of things. Um, yeah. And and I think it's it's interesting because mostly people find that space in creative art, you know, like, like you kind of went through like to conceptual art and found that kind of freedom and that you kind of struggling with those, um, you know, constraints that I was introduced to right in the beginning and thought, no, this is like absolutely not for me. Um, I cannot, I cannot do this because I'm kind of fighting too many barriers besides my own kind of incompetency because I just don't have the background, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, what you're reminding me of is um, <clears throat> in a, in a different sense when I was working in the factory and um, studying art at night, I remember um, most people that, that we all worked there were all immigrants. Um, most of us uh, cause living in the Netherlands I think probably about over 75% of uh, the craftspeople working there were um, folks of color, you know, from different um, Dutch um, colonized uh, homelands that came there with their families. And so um, I can identify in a way what you're talking about of theory being a kind of soulless and um, freedom to it that, uh, you know, when I would be studying, sometimes I would listen to podcasts or I would listen to lectures 
a lot on, uh, you know, in my earbuds and on YouTube um, and be able to dream, you know, and listen to mm -hmm. philosophers. And uh, while I was, you know, sanding away in the factory, um, it felt like it was a freedom, you know, that I could dream bigger mm -hmm. and how to get out of there, um, you know, because of the, the classism and the racism. Um, whereas I felt like when I was making shoes, part of that what had helped me go to, you know, pursuing academia was because some of the barriers that I experienced uh, in that industry, you know, where I was never promoted for jobs and I had the highest education in the, you know, factory by with my BFA and then my MA I did there too. Mm -hmm. And I could never even get a job as a, you know, just a supervisor uh, or anything, you know, outside of that craft. It was mm -hmm. very um, masculine. It was very male. There were only a couple of um, uh, women shoemakers that worked there. And so it was a lot of sexism and homophobia and transphobia. And it was, you know, it was very racist. So it was challenging. I, I hear you in that way. Like there was that, you know, there were moments where I could be in my own little world with my earbuds on, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, listen to my favorite theorist at the time or people talking about art and it was the gap, uh, the class gap between my colleagues um, really, I noticed, increased a lot over time. Like sometimes, you know, I think after <laughs> my second degree, my colleagues still never really understood what I was doing. Mm. And uh, they kind of equated it to doing Sunday painting classes. So sometimes they would ask me, are you still Doing that thing? Paint? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Like, I get that totally. Like, I got that from my grandmother, from my parents. Like, are you still doing this thing? This art thing? Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, you know, um, and it's, it's, yeah. Like, basically, anything, like, nothing is basically worth doing unless you can, you, it's employed, you, you know, you, and makes you employable. Um, and I, I completely, I completely understand that. I completely, you know, understand that like coming from my mother who she left school at 14 because she had like eight, like seven siblings to kind of help take care of. Um, and it's it's just, yeah, like why, why would I? Why would I like write papers that nobody pays me for? Like what, you know, like my, my grandmother, you know, she was like, look, when are you going to have children at 24, 26? Like I had five, you know, those are, you know, those kind of things. Um, and, and yeah, but, but, you know, theory kind of like, it just, it does, it gives you that space. It gives you that space to be, you know, like a potential of who it is that you imagine. Um, and then like curation, like opens up a whole new field, you know, to actually making that um, visible, those ideas, like trying to, and trying to share it with like new audiences and, um, people who might never have thought about seeing things the way that you, um, you know, can show them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was part of one of the, I mean, I, I have a different appreciation of art now than I did when I was young, because, you know, when my mom, um, after my dad passed away, you know, my mom raised uh, my brother and I, and she was an artist and um, actually went to art school and did her BFA but watching her struggle as a single mom and not mm. being able to then choose her career, you know, and have to put that aside to raise us um, and, and take a, you know, quote unquote, normal job. Mm. Um, that was, that was a big deterrent or a discourager, you know, for, 
um, me getting into the arts later on, because um, to see her not be able to, you know, finish pursuing her dream at the sacrifice of taking care of us, you know. Um, so, you know, and, and um, growing up and having family members, too, that would say, that's not going to make you any money. Like, that's not going to put any food on the table. Why do you want to be an artist? Go, or, yeah. yeah, draw on Sunday, but get a nine to five job, you know, yeah. and and having that nine to five job, but then feeling really impinged by it and not mm. feeling that um, it really nourished my growth and my spirit. Mm. Um, you know, that was that was that shift and Mm. I don't know about it how it was like for you but I think maybe it was that being also supported enough you know by my mom too um to pursue that uh even though it seemed impractical you know uh and a little bit um risky probably for for them you know risky for her in that regard of I I you know definitely think like uh, she saw it as a kind of investment in her children, you know, um, mm-hmm. to not have to struggle the same way that she did, you know, and it's been a long, long journey, <laughs> you know, yeah, and only yeah. now kind of finding its legs and where, yeah. you know, that oh, means. like totally, like I completely and totally understand. It's not, you know, I mean, like you too, I had to work, I had to work like long hours because I had to support myself and, so it takes long. It takes like really, really long, you know, and, and life happens. Things happen. Children happen. Relationships happen, um, you know, and, and I just, this kind of idea that uh, you kind of have to, like as a woman, lock yourself up away in a nunnery and do your PhD and then you kind of emerge, you know, uh, and, and you know, suddenly you kind of have like an epiphany and then you kind of get, you know, chosen um to go and teach somewhere it's just it's completely alien and impractical and never most of the people I know it just doesn't work like that at all you kind of just you struggle and struggle and struggle and you know every now and then you get like a break and an opening and like encouragement like from people um you know who yeah who's kind of been through you know on the same path or you know kind of tell you that you're not insane basically, because they're just so, there's so few people who you kind of, you you can like aspire to, whose Mm. life you can kind of, you know, follow. It's just, yeah. But um, yeah, I I just, like after, you know, many years, like in like community museums, because in South Africa, like after 94, um, with like apartheid being disbanded, there was this, um, you know, increased appreciation for people telling their own stories and telling their own histories. So it was a really exciting time to be like involved in museums. Um, But then I I realized that, you know, I was always telling other people's stories also, you know, that, that, and, and that was good, you know, in a way, except that there was like limited resources. And as time went on there, you know, those kind of resources kind of got more and more um, like constrained. And I felt no ways. I like, I, you know, surely I like, I need my own space to be able to kind of develop my own um, ideas. And yeah, that was like with uh, two kids and both of them say now, you know, uh, you would like, really, you were like a bad person at that time. Like during your PhD, you were like a terror. Just don't, you know, when, when you go and work, please don't become a terror again. (laughs) Because, (laughs) because it was just, it's so like emotionally taxing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I just had to go through that. I had to go through that. And, and and that's insane. It's insane to have to go through that process 
to just tell yourself you're okay. Like you, like just to validate your existence. That's insane. But that's just kind of what I felt I needed to do. And, you know, I'm like at peace with all the mess and all the, you know, the broken stories and, and things that just don't make sense, you know, in my life, because that's just, that's just what it is. It is what it is. Yeah, they say that a lot, huh? how PhDs are really very hard on families. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a really challenging time when you have a partner and children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's a lot for, for the whole family, you know, yeah. it goes, goes along on the ride, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so to be finally, you know, of that long investment free of mm-hmm. that, you know, um, but still the reality of what it is to do the actual job is a lot different, like you said, yeah. you know, than than the fantasy of what mm. it means to become the scholar. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So like you, you, we left off at you, like, you know, pursuing like a um, bachelor's and master's in fine art. Um, and then like you continued. So you're busy with a PhD, you're busy with Agnes. And so let's talk a bit about that. Just mm. a bit about how you kind of found your feet in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, when I was finishing my MA, I was um, I was part of my thesis was um, I was interested in um, stories by uh, corn planter, and I realized that being in in Europe, you know, I had great a great supervisor, but that wasn't her specialty. You know, her specialty was um, feminist Marxism uh, and labor and art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she could only support me to a certain degree, but I realized if I really wanted to continue to learn more about the things I cared about that were related to my dad's culture, mm. um, being a Mohawk man, that um, I needed to go home. Yeah. I wanted to learn more about that and I needed to be in community. And those were things that I missed out on growing up and I didn't mm. grow up on the territory. And, um, and so, yeah, it just seemed like the natural thing actually to come back. Mm-hmm. um to turtle island and to, to put my roots back here you know and to be able to learn about our culture so um that's why i ended up actually taking that turn after i finished my ma then it seemed like okay i really got a taste for theory and <laughs> i know i got the i got the theory bug so now i wanted to go on you know and um pursue that more but i needed to be grounded in home you know and mm-hmm. And learn that um, from here. So that's how I ended up coming to Queens. Um, it's because I had extended family that lived in the region, and so I felt like if I applied here, also I could learn Mohawk in, uh, in in university, which was amazing. I never got a chance to learn that growing up in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had cousins, and my cousins' family, you know, were close by, so I could go and you know, when I had time off, I could go and uh, eat with the family, and you know. Mm-hmm just feel uh, I wasn't, uh, I had some support, you know, I wasn't mm. alone. <clears throat> and, um, and through that, you know, I, I started doing my PhD in cultural studies, which is uh, the program that I'm in now. I'm a, a candidate in cultural studies. So with cultural studies, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it is kind of a natural fit a lot of times with art theory and visual culture. Uh, yeah. And so my, the theory that I studied in my MA was grounded in cultural studies because a lot of the professors uh, work at Goldsmiths and then they were um, adjuncting mm. with the Dutch Art Institute, which is where I did my MA. Um, so having that kind of, uh, I won't want to say officially a Goldsmith stamp, but a number of them coming, you know, working at Goldsmiths 
uh, it was very much kind of grounded in cultural studies. So that was a, that was a kind of a natural fit for me to apply mm-hmm. for those kind of programs. Um, and it gave me, you know, the freedom to be able to um, focus on subject matter that related to art and have practice if I wanted to do a research creation uh, kind of project uh, or like artistic research. Uh, well, I pursued, you know, a longer dissertation, uh, which was something that I wanted to learn, which was mm. to write a lengthier, um, you know, um, written um, document of, of research, you know, mm. to learn how to write also the craft of writing, <laughs> mm. right, and the craft of writing theory in that way. So I guess there we go back to that theme again, of being interested in, in some form of a craft of mm. different mediums. Mm. And uh, with the Agnes, you know, actually, uh, the Agnes uh, originally approached me a couple of years ago and asked if I'd be interested in um, uh, pursuing a um, position as a research associate. And they wanted to um, um, spend time more dedicated to Indigenous collections and the lack of a documentation about a lot of the ancestors in the collection. And it's part of one of the things that we talked about if I were to apply to um, that position and when that came up was that what I had been interested in then too was that, well, um, it was important to me that we also focused on rematriation and repatriation and that was, that would be a part of it. Mm. Um, just how I, you know, how I have been taught and what I know um, for our communities, what's important to us. And so I was very pleased, you know, to hear that they were very open to that. They didn't actually have uh, anyone on staff that was dedicated to the you know, what that entails. Uh, and I don't have experience in doing that. I have learned on the job and I still am. Um, and I have a lot of community support, thankfully. So we've set up ways in which um, it's not focused uh, on me, but I found that my role in doing that has been to bring community in. So one of the things, you know, we have is uh, an indigenous art um, advisory circle. Uh, that we set up last year um, that has, uh, leads, you know, our discussion and what our focuses are uh, annually. And um, so we've been starting that work. Uh, and so they, they are who I turn to. And when we have projects that um, people bring to the museum, like other, uh, say, um, professors that, you know, want to um, invite their students to engage with the collection or um, graduate students, projects that involve conservation or um, curatorial studies and um, that's that's what my job has become uh, is to bring them together um, with um, our own people um, to be able to hear from them what our needs are or our community's needs are that then can um, guide that process rather than the other way around, which is you know commonly the way in which things are operated in museums, where especially uh, and in the logics of museums and uh, the logics of universities. Um, you know, where research is often something that is someone's uh, someone's idea within the institute and then thinking that that might serve community. It's, uh, so we try to take an approach the other way around. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that's how that's how I ended up um, here. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm interested, um, you know, in your bio, you mentioned um, that you're interested in how Indigenous ancestors are transformed into laboring objects of extraction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe to I uh, will try not to use uh, such inaccessible language as I wrote in my bio. 
Um, basically, what uh, what I'm interested in is I'm interested in ways in which um, um, different indigenous and racialized communities how um, how communities understand their own ancestors. And what I, what we mean by that is that not only when we think of the word ancestor, oftentimes we think of you know the word we're referring to human ancestors, um, so human remains, mm-hmm. but um, you know from from my culture and from many other cultures, a lot of people understand um, ancestors um, to mean also what in Western logics um, are often referred to as artifacts or objects, so non-human beings, mm-hmm. you know, that are embodied um, in a different way. And so when we think about it um, from those kinds of perspectives, which is at the heart of my dissertation too, is basically, you know, um, referring in different ways to different cultures, having that understanding of um, that aliveness of relatives in the mm. in museum collections um, that's really counter to these kind of Western uh, logics of objectivity and ob- objecthood. Um, then when we understand that, we can see in other ways in which they're performing a form of labor as well, you know, within collections, within exhibitions and what does it then mean to be alive and to be remembered and known um, and um, have a role in community, but being not in community, but then being extracted from community um, and uh, being accumulated you know, within collections and archives um, and performing a certain kind of function, right? And, and creating value, right? Or having value extracted from them, right? From their literally their embodiment, you know, within those collections. Um, this has been the focus of my interest in telling those stories, you know, and, and telling the way, telling the story in which the way at how that operates uh, and how that is counter to um, the ways in which they live um, and how um, the repercussions of those choices and um, the, the, the harm, the impact that it has on them um, and their oftentimes inability to be um, returned mm-hmm. home or um, the, the moment before return, you know, yeah. and what they're doing in, that, in those places. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what it leads a lot of, you know, in that direction and that way, too, when we like when we're, you know, those ancestors that were also connected to those ancestral, those ancestors in the museum, their embodiment, let's say, as a mask or, you know, as a, as a ceremonial pipe or as, as medicines, as beings that um, questionably um, are not necessarily, well, well, they may be highly artistic, you know, and, and highly, um, you know, highly beautiful in that way that they're really made, you know, with, with the creator's breath in mind, mm-hmm. um, their, their, you know, their purpose in life was not to be a quote unquote artwork, you know, mm-hmm. in a museum, right? They serve another a role right in yeah. in their societies and so you know and those those uh those spirits that are still connected to them that lived with them in that period that they were alive and that have used them and have made them and passed them down to their relatives and you know they still have a connection to them and so um the way i've come to understand things is that when they're awakened to perform labor you know in museums like say on exhibition or even on uh permanent display in a vitrine, you know, in which they're then awakened, you know, then um, it's really activating and not giving rest to those spirits that are connected to them, you know, because 
most of them, right, they were found, um, you know, they've been um, unearthed, right, from a lot of them from, from burial places, right, where spirit was meant to be resting at that yeah. point, you know, and, uh, and not being called upon to, to labor, mm. you know? to certainly not in that way, right? Yeah. So how do, how do Indigenous people experience these collections? Do they feel as if um, they are living ancestors? I mean, people have different beliefs, so that's something I'd have to preface. You know, uh, I can't speak for every nation. Every nation has their own understandings and protocols and um, their own ways, right? I, um, I'm, I'm primarily, right, I'm taught from um, a Mohawk and a Haudenosaunee perspective, so mm. that's how I understand things. But, you know, even uh, as an urban person, right, uh, I'm an urban uh, mixed-race person of an Indigenous descent. I didn't grow up you know, learning those things, I, I learned them later in life. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of people that also, uh, you know, in community that might also still view them um, as non-agential and as, as objects. And that's, I feel like that's a product of colonization. That's one of uh, the ways in which uh, we've been assimilated. Mm-hmm. So they really, you know, have lost uh, uh, an everyday memory and understanding of those things. But um, the way I've been taught about that is that, um, you know, them, they are alive and they, um, they have a spirit. You know, everything has a spirit. Um, this table has a, has a spirit, right? That this table I'm sitting on, right? We're sitting, not on. <laughs> I'm sitting, I'm not sitting on my table. This table I'm sitting at, you know, it, it's also made of wood, you know. It's also, uh, it also came from beings that are alive, right? And they're if their body's been sacrificed to now, you know, become become this table that uh, that I that I sit here at, you know, and so um, in that way, how does it um, affect communities? I think it. I know it affects uh, a lot of communities, especially it affects communities when the ancestors are ceremonial, when their their purpose in life was to be a medicine. Um, those are because if you think of it that way, then they're not. When they're in a museum, are they really having the ability to then be that medicine in the community? Mm-hmm. No, they're not. And so they they miss out on being able to be um, um, fulfill their role as a medicine, right, in, mm-hmm. in community or uh, their ceremonial role that then you know revitalizes and supports and nourishes community. So yeah, community really longs for the return of those ancestors because they they fulfill a really vital role um, that they can't fulfill when they're in a museum because Mm -hmm. the the idea of museums again maybe coming back to like what it what we think of what art is you know um that there is a that is there's a certain idea and purpose in which from a western perspective what is the kind of labor being asked of those ancestors right Mm -hmm. um but i also know that like sometimes community members, um, you know, they, um, people also feel, um, you know, happy about seeing some of their ancestors represented in a place in which is predominantly very Western, you know, and to see um, a pride, right, in, um, in the art, in the artistry and in, um, in the, the deep spiritualness and the, you know, the, the, the knowledge and beauty of, of one's ancestors is yeah. can feel really good, right? To to come into a space and 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 to feel that uh, if it's done respectfully, you know, and if they're shown respectfully, um, to that uh, that's conveyed, you know. I, I 
you know, I don't know, uh, I'm wondering about, you know, your thoughts about that too, but I really feel like any of these kinds of decisions that we make, you know, in museums and, and in making art as artists, how something is made with a certain intention is, is really conveyed in, um, in the whole process. And that's felt, you know, by, by the visitor, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's complicated in that way. There's mm -hmm. not a, I don't have one answer for you mm -hmm. other than um, it's quite uh, context specific. It's um, person specific, family mm -hmm. specific, nation specific, um, yeah. you know? Yeah, but, but and yeah. And, and I also think, you know, as, as curators, as academics, you know, where you're coming from and your, you know, your place and, and where you kind of, yeah, where you're speaking from is, is very, it's, it's very like important to kind of make that clear and to make your, you know, your positionality um, so that people have a sense of that because like very often in museums it's kind of covered up, you know, behind this veneer of doing things in a particular way you know, of presenting it in glass cases and having wall panels, you know. Um, but I think it's really, especially for people who are coming into this space as an, like a real alien space. It is, it's an alien space for many, many people. Um, and, you know, they want to know who's speaking, like who's speaking to me, you know, whose voice is speaking to me and telling me their ideas, like who, you know, because, yeah. For, for example, in South Africa, official spaces are, like everybody knows, they are um, highly politicized and political spaces, you know. So who is it? Like who is the official um, voice? Um, and and I think once you once you make that clear, people can transition. Like you know, it's like an easier transition. Mm -hmm. So um, Sebastian, like lastly, I've kept you here for, and it's been fantastic. It's been so amazing speaking to you. Um, I wanted to know. How would you say you found your voice now that you are conveying like the voices of ancestors of many nations? Like how, how do you see yourself like in that process? And how do you, you know, is this a creative process? Like how do you kind of, you know, like reconcile that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just see myself as a helper. Um, I think that's, that's my role. That's uh that's a role I, I feel um, I'm coming into in community. Um, my role is to support communities and um, getting back in touch with their ancestors here at the Agnes and learning from them how they need to ceremonially take care of their ancestors from their own perspectives um, that are from many different nations. So um, I've always been reluctant to um, take on this idea of what I think a lot of institutions often do, where they'll place a person in a certain kind of job and say, okay, now you are the quote-unquote expert on mm. something. And, and in reality, I could never be an expert on everyone else's different nation, yeah. you know, let alone my own as a learner, mm. you know, and uh, that to me is... Um, that's being authentic in our roles uh, in which what our capacities are um, as um, people who work in museums, oftentimes with um, ancestors from other cultures uh, and with artists from other nations and um, who have different life experiences and come to the decisions that they make based on, uh, you know, all of, all of that. So that's my role, I think, as a helper in that way um, and to help those ancestors too and to help them bring that communication you know uh, make that smoother between them and their beloveds 
uh, and and center you know their needs, uh, center communities' needs, center those ancestors' needs, um, and that inform the kind of decisions that are made in terms of what what how they want to be while they're in this museum, mm-hmm. who they might want to teach, who, who they might uh, not want to teach everything about their life, um, yeah. the, the, what is appropriate and what is not, mm-hmm. you know. And the, so sometimes uh, my job has been to kind of navigate those mm-hmm. challenging questions of relearning and unlearning certain mm-hmm. kinds of very westernized ideas about knowledge production in spaces like museums um, where even you know in this university too and and more probably safe to say all universities across Canada and uh, and throughout the United States um, you know there is very much grounded uh, an idea I think that's tied to um, enlightenment you know um, mm-hmm. European enlightenment and this idea that knowledge is universal and it's mm-hmm. um, it's meant to be accessible to everyone and not all knowledge is uh, from the way I was taught are actually um, meant for everyone yeah. uh, and the reason why that and I think back to one of my elders Tawaskon uh, Alan Dockstater you know he often teaches me that um, you know with knowledge what we learn carries a responsibility and um, especially when it comes to um, indigenous knowledges and carrying certain knowledge um, is that with that there is a there's a role there's a kind of a job or an obligation you know to to hold that and so we, we do not want to know everything because yeah. that, that would be a, a huge burden to mm. carry, to be responsible for, not just for ourselves, but then our whole community in giving that back reciprocally, yeah. you know, and thinking about that seven generations ahead and how that affects the next seven generations mm. is an enormous responsibility even to then carry one thing. So, you know, if I see it the way I'm taught in that way, to be a helper I still have to think of it in that perspective. What does it mean to be a helper that makes decisions and choices in my life that affect, you know, the next seven generations of the mm. community um, is something that I have to hold and I, I have to keep in mind whenever I navigate decisions. And that's why we have a process that involves having a circle that I can turn to with people mm. who have a lot more knowledge, yeah. you know, that are elders, uh, knowledge keepers and um, people who have worked also in the arts in uh, many years and have had to deal with similar challenges and um, have ways of navigating them and good um, ideas on how to go about doing that in a good way. So that's uh, that's the, the way I approach it. Um, and that's how I, I'll probably always see my life, mm. you know, uh, is a helper yeah. and a learner. Because I, I don't know about you, but I never want to stop learning mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that's uh, I think when we stop learning even when we're older um you know then then we've closed something off you know yeah. that we're not being open you know and being humble in that way so yeah that's, that's awesome Sebastian thank you so much um you know I, I I totally agree I think that um you know the more people you have on board um you know when you are dealing with such potent, heavy, you know, um, rich uh, knowledge is, is, it's really important. It's really important to have your, your support system um, because yeah, it's, it's just too much uh, for one person. And also I think, you know, this idea of, you know, the artist is genius. The artist as an individual is just something that we have to break down um, and to, to open the field up 
and to to let more people in. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's it's been fantastic, it, and and it was worth waiting for. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, we were long, we were long overdue for conversations. Yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> like months and months. Yeah, like across oceans and so forth. But thank you so much. Oh, thank I'm you very so much. Hey, thank you very much too. Oh, Take care. Thanks. Bye. No. Thank you for listening to With Open Mouths, the podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Sebastian DeLine, for speaking with us today. This podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Conita Lilla, and produced by Agnes Etherington Art Center in partnership with Queen's University's campus radio station, CFRC 101.9 FM. The music is composed by Jamil 3DN and produced by Alroy EC3 Cox 3. Subscribe now so that you don't miss our next episode. You can find the podcast at Digital Agnes, CFRC's website, and on podcasting platforms like Apple, Google, and Spotify. We'll see you next time. They thought we would stay slaves. One chapter, but this novel has many.